Hello, everyone. Welcome to Sounds from the Studio, brought to you by Contemporary Craft. Contemporary Craft fosters the use of traditional craft materials such as ceramic, fiber, glass, metal, and wood to make art. Our community honors the history and heritage of craft while showcasing modern, exploratory work. And since our organization is located in Pittsburgh, PA, we decided to bring some of the stories of our exhibiting and studio artists to a broader audience by way of this podcast. I'm Rachel, the Executive Director at Contemporary Craft. And I'm Camila, a podcaster and art enthusiast. We are your hosts for this journey, and there are many ways to keep up with us. You can go to the Facebook page and like it, Contemporary Craft, on Twitter at SCCPGH, Instagram at SCCPGH, or just go to ContemporaryCraft.org. And find us wherever you get your podcasts. We just ask that you please follow, rate, and review, and also share, share, share alike. It's hard to believe that we're into another new year, but with that comes with the excitement of everything ahead of us, which is a lot for contemporary craft in 2023. We've just announced the details around Out of Hand, which is our annual fundraiser, and it's gonna happen on April 1st this year. The theme for this event is expect the unexpected, and I can promise that we have a few tricks up our sleeves for the event. One of the new additions this year will be that our auction will have three prizes that are awarded to contributing artists, and today's guest, Nava, will in fact be selecting the Juror's Choice Award. Event information and tickets are currently on our website, and a little spoiler alert, we're also soon to announce a National Artist Residency Program, so I will have more about that on our next episode. Oh, that's awesome. That's exciting. All right. Um, So... Let's dive right into today's episode, which is going to be a little bit different for us uh, because instead of focusing on an artist practice, we're turning the table to talk to someone behind the scenes, an arts administrator, Jennifer Nava Milliken. Nava, this is what we go by? We go by Nava? Sure. I take both. <laughs> okay. Well, welcome to Sounds of the Studio. How are you doing today? I'm great. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Nava, thank you for sharing your time with us today. Over the past year, year and a half, we've started to get to know one another a little bit based on the work that art organizations are doing. But today, I'm excited to get to know you a little bit more as an individual uh, and hear some of your hopes kind of for the field and the work that you're currently doing. I, of course, know you as the executive director at the Center for Art in Wood, but you have an incredibly extensive and really admirable background in terms of your other curatorial work. So I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, I know you were at Bellevue just before the center. So what what landed you in Philadelphia? And, and just give our listeners a bit of who you are. Thanks, Rachel. Um, wow, I, I, um, I didn't really follow the conventional path to being a curator, um, although academically I very much did, you know, two degrees in art history, um, but they were not back to back. I needed time to figure out how I was going to finance those degrees and, um, and also um, spend a lot of time out in the world uh, just becoming a person. And um, so I have two nationalities and um, I was spending a lot of time in between two countries with another country thrown in just for experience and, <laughs> and um, I guess um, a job that financed that experience. So, um, 
So it was it was quite there were there were a few years between my um, bachelor's degree and my um, graduate degree uh, study, and then um, through that program, I um, um, was involved in an internship. Um, this was at the um, Hebrew University of uh, Jerusalem in Israel, and um, through that program, I landed an internship with the design and architecture department at the Israel Museum and spent a number of years there. It turned into a paid position, um, really doing a lot of the grunt work behind um, creating texts for exhibitions, preparing exhibitions, um, and, and um, uh, through that experience, I learned probably uh, more about what goes into uh, being a curator in a museum than any other than any other position I'd, I'd had. Um, I did learn administration from um, a period of time before graduate school when I was at the Museum of Arts and Design in New York. Um, and then, um, and so that kind of honed my, my interest in contemporary craft and contemporary design. Um, but it was in my graduate school years um, and my stage or internship time at the Israel Museum that really sharpened it and um, helped give me some skills that could be um, applied going forward. And then um, at some point, um, I figured that my time at the Israel Museum had kind of come to an end, that I had done as much as I could there. And, um, and so I decided to um, open my own space. And this was, a, this was a time, let's see, this was right after, this is the early 2010s when um, the pop-up exhibition model was um, was of interest to me and it was something that had been in play in places in the UK and I had talked to curators there in the course of my degree um, who were really focused on contemporary design and speculative design which was becoming more ingrained in the museum world. Um, these were really good years to be studying design um, in the graduate school level so I decided to bring that model to Tel Aviv and um, which is a which is a community of people who are very interested in um, seeing new things, new creative um, movements, um, very curious, um, and have fostered a dynamic um, scene for testing out ideas. But um, craft and design are really not. There is very little literacy um, going on there, even though the makership and the conceptual side was really strong because of the academic institutions there. Um, so I decided to focus on local makers and um, bring everything into a space that didn't have any hierarchies. I would do thematic exhibitions so that I could bring in painting, sculpture, objects that connected to the functional world, um, and, um, and have them all kind of connect together to create one central story. Sure. And, um, and I did this in a central part of the city that got a lot of traffic, um, and it was wonderful. It was um, so financially not lucrative, but <laughs> it uh, was probably the most creatively inspiring time of my life because it was me doing these things and testing all these ideas that I'd been focusing on in my um, studies actually putting them into practice and I felt like I was the luckiest person in the entire world to have the freedom um, and the accessibility to do this for like no money whatsoever. Um, so one show turned into several shows and then um, and then I moved 
back into this sort of um, wandering model and I started to do exhibition projects that looked that bounced from studio to studio to kind of open up and give education an educational view into um, the work that makers are doing where they're doing it and um, kind of open up discussions about craft that way. So do you mean you you kind of hosted uh, an exhibition or an event literally within the artist space and studio? Right. Actually, it was a group exhibition that took place in five different studios um, that were um, five different kind of studio models um, that uh, and the hosts were participating artists in the show. So one was one, for example, was um, and it was the show was all based on um, contemporary metals. So the works were quite small and could be they were quite portable in that sense, so um, we benefited from that. But there was one studio space, the opening studio space was really in this industrial um, part of the city and um, part of a complex of industrial studios um, and workshops. And then the next one was uh, more of a gallery setting um, where an artist had a studio in the back. And then the next was actually a home studio. So this artist was the most courageous of all where she opened up her, her, the doors of her apartment, which was gorgeous anyway, and, um, and hosted people for a period of a month while she oh, was wow. hosting the exhibition. Um, so it's the same work that you traveled? The same work and the same, and we, there was an exhibition design thinking that was applied to it. So I had created, well, we're really diving into this one now, aren't we? Um, the exhibition was titled um, Workspace with an E to kind of um, um, dive, uh, kind of explore or invite thinking about work as something that's inspired, but also um, includes a lot of discipline. Um, and um, and in Hebrew, it sounds better. It was Shulchan Avodah, which means um, uh, like your desk area, your desktop. Um, oh, and so that does sound better. I like that. Yes. <laughs> Shulchan Liban? Shulchan, Shulchan, which Shulchan. is table. Mm -hmm. Good. Uh, which is table. And then Avuda, which is Avuda. Shulchan Avuda. Got it. I, yeah, I love that because the idea of how that work lives and exists in each of those spaces, especially for you, would be incredibly rewarding to see it in each of those spaces versus right? the, the patron or the visitor that might see it in only one of them. Right. Well, that that was what we were really looking for, but it it wasn't an initial part of the planning. It just opened up as, as a result of the way that we that I was organizing it. And um, and, and that richness of, um, you know, where the jeweler's bench, um, which is pretty universal looking uh, space. Um, they, they, wherever you go internationally, jeweler's bench always kind of look the same. It's this, you know, it's like a typical desktop, but with this little, with this little half circle notched in, and then, you know, the tools will kind of more or less be the same. But to see this same surface in, in a, you know, as I said, like more of a retail or gallery space and in an industrial space, in a living space. And then, um, and then the last, I'm missing one, but then the, the last one was in Jerusalem in a, in a historical um, 
arts, Ottoman arts building from where artists had had studios for over a hundred years. Mm. And so, you know, the beauty of that location um, in the larger context of Jerusalem, which is this, um, it's the holy city for a lot of people. And um, it definitely, if you've been there, you kind of, you know, you approach it, you go up, um, the language around um, your approach to Jerusalem also involves like you go up to Jerusalem. When you leave Jerusalem, you go down. Um, so all of that enfolding around um, looking at art um, that is worn on the body, that moves around from place to place with the body, um, but also the exhibition would move to play from place to place yeah. around the country. Um, because there were so many layers that we could invite people to um, discuss with us. So it was Sorry, really, I got off like track, I said, but I, I just, I think for me, asking the questions is also a matter of just what I know of you. There is so much depth within the projects that you do. So just to say like, well, I curated this or that, like, I just want to expand on like, but it was also so much more. <laughs> so thank you for letting us dive in there a little bit. <laughs> I appreciate it. Yeah, I like to do that. Everything's an onion. So, but yeah, so ultimately at some point you end up in Philadelphia. Yes, okay, so so yes, my, my husband got a green card and, and drugged me, sorry. Um, I was dragged away from home kicking and screaming. I did not want to come to the US, but um, I'm not sure that this is important to include in this discussion, but that's, that is how I went, got back to the US. Um, and, um, and so I landed in New York and then, yes, I ended up, I quickly ended up being appointed in um, the position of curator of craft at Bellevue Arts Museum, um, which was a completely different kind of environment to work in. It was an institutional environment. However, there was no collection. So this contemporary art museum was operated really as a Kunsthalle hmm. uh, model, which is a museum that doesn't have a collection rather hmm the education and um, the the output that the museum creates is kind of looked at as the collection um, rather than rather than a um, treasury of objects so um, I was meant to uh, my title was curator of craft but I was really meant to also um, bolster the contemporary design programming at the museum and um, one of the ways that I did that was uh, to host um, an exhibition looking at um, contemporary designer makers in the region, um, in the Pacific Northwest, um, who were quite active there. Um, we were looking at a tri-state area plus BC. Um, so that would be Washington, Oregon, Idaho, I guess, and BC. And um, we brought together, wow, almost 30 young designers um, and um, who, who not only worked within a design kind of um, process and thinking um, and, and thinking and using design strategies to create um, their work but also were hand making their work in studio uh, which is a really significant model that has come back in the 21st century um, it's it's um, it's got a history but uh, in the Pacific Northwest it was really something quite active that was um, growing in scope in the Pacific Northwest which was not a region that was uh, really, really known for its design activity prior to that time. So um, we did that. We did a publication. Um, it was called the the New Frontier, and um, uh, learned a lot in that experience, and um, and have really enjoyed witnessing the careers um, and the expansion of the work of those formative young 
um, entrepreneurs um, ever since. So that's been about seven years since that project. I'll, I'll back up a little bit. And um, that was connected to my time at the Israeli Museum. And um, I titled the work that I was doing um, on my own at that time, um, based in, it started in Tel Aviv. And it really, it really needs to be mentioned because um, in, in Tel Aviv, there was a lot of energy, youth, and spirit of being able to do anything, anywhere. Um, and also at that time, costs were low enough that you actually could, without a lot of financial backing, um, none of which I had. So, but I did have energy and creativity and a lot of artists um, and makers who wanted to do things with me. So um, I called this enterprise Inter Alia Projects. Inter Alia, the only people who know what Inter Alia means are lawyers. Um, it's Latin for among other things. Um, or in Hebrew, you could call it Benashar, but it it sounds better in Latin, and I think the the Latin phrasing really succinctly um, um, articulates what what it was that I was doing. So so um, I mentioned that what we, what I was bringing in there were these were these um, thematically based showings of um, work from different media that connected to the functional world as well as to what we would have called at that time the fine arts world. Um, so we might have like um, an unconventional or speculative kind of chair um, alongside a painting, mm. alongside um, works of contemporary jewelry, um, alongside sculpture, and um, everything in between, among other right. things. Okay. And then programming happened around that. So we would have artist talks and discussions. Oh. Um, and I'd create, whenever I could, I would create a publication around that. And um, then we would also participate in community arts-wide, city-wide arts events to get maximum exposure. Nice. So to, I guess, jump a little bit back more to current, like I know currently on view at the center is um, a body of work that is focused on vessels, which looks incredible. And I really appreciate the subtext of that with uh, a focus on embodiment, uh, autonomy, ornamentation. And I, you know, frankly, for me, those three words encapsulate a lot of what keeps me so impassioned about craft. Um, but beyond this work, as I was kind of alluding to earlier, uh, I consistently take note of the fact that your exhibitions have substance. There's something of some type of societal investigation or a focus on justice or, or something that is there. Can you talk a little bit about how you're choosing which topics to explore whenever you're approaching an exhibition? Hmm, that is such a good question. Uh, I think I can approach it in a number of angles. I think part of my role here is to use the language of wood and, and represent and support the artists who are working in it, but also be cognizant of the experiences of the people who are walking around and trying to get through every day in the world. Um, so art really has always been something that has served to and functioned as something that could transport us and cause wonder 
and help us think about things, help us think about our own existence, about, but also remind us about more cosmic questions that um, spark our imaginations and feed our souls. Um, art also can be a tool for inspiring empathy, which I think is something that's so critical and important in our time. Yeah. Um, and I think craft uniquely, because it's something that we touch and engage with every single day um, over thousands and thousands and thousands of years, has this particular unique power to um, to to connect with people. And when we talk about empathy, like what better tool is there to, to make connections and bridge people who would otherwise be distant and disparate um, than an object that we can all say is beautiful, that was made by, by a pair of hands um, who really cared about a material, thought about a material, and um, had an image in their minds of something that they wanted to make and then made it. And then here we are living with it and looking at it and using it and touching it and smelling it and um, sharing it with the people that we love um, and surround ourselves with. And to take that object and that tradition and those thousands of years behind it and inject it with ideas that connect to the way to the distinctive experience of our time is something that's so incredibly powerful and it's that it's that familiarity that sensuality and that universality the sort of recognition that this is a cup and it doesn't matter where you're from or what language you speak you know it's a cup you can appreciate the beauty of this particular cup as opposed to um, a manufactured cup. And then what about what happens when an artist um, knows how to make cups, knows about the history of cups, but also wants to talk about how a cup can also be a stand-in or a proxy for a woman's body, and then use that to educate or say something about the experience of being in um, a woman's body or or a non-conforming genderized person's body or talk about gender um, or you know those things that we're discussing in society yeah you know what I I really love that answer and it truthfully it really validates a conversation that I just had with a board member myself this week we were really discussing you know an upcoming exhibition that we have that will be very conceptual in nature and we you know, slightly different than what our audience might be used to. And we were having this discussion around how how is that approachable and we really came to the place that it's approachable because it's craft. Like exactly mm. what you just said, that like there's an accessibility about this work because you still recognize the materiality of it. And so you can enter the gallery and at least understand like how that functions outside of the art to bring you to a place where then you can look at the art and not feel maybe the same level of pretentiousness that you might in a different media because you already have a relationship with the material that maybe, hopefully, you feel more welcome to explore the societal topic or um, the conceptual nature of the work in itself. So uh, thank you. <laughs> I think you can look at it also in a, in a way that, you know, every, every if not, I'm not totally versed in the semantics 
study of semantics, but but you can look at it. You know, every object it, it contains a series of codes, right? And so you know, a lot of those when we have functional objects in front of us, a lot of that is deciphered already. And then beyond that, we have a tradition of ornamentation. Um, so so the work of decoding an object that is mysterious to, to us that we've never encountered before, um, like something that we might find in the gallery or museum or exhibition space, um, there's already a certain amount of decoding work that's, that's been done for you. Mm -hmm. You understand the material, you understand the object, you understand the history of the object, you have personal experience with the object. So, so that kind of clears the air in a lot of ways to be able to really commune with the artists and um, what they're trying to communicate with you. So if I could ask, whenever you are selecting the work that you're putting into an exhibition, is there ever a moment where uh, an aesthetic or a concept would take precedence in your selection? Or do they balance? I'm not sure. <laughs> um, well, let, let me think about the current exhibition, which is a group exhibition. I think this is the question that really better serves a group exhibition where you have a number of different approaches coming together under one, um, um, one person's vision or storytelling. Um, Michael Monroe, um, used to say that the true test of a curator is the group exhibition because that's your story um, and you're responsible for those decisions. Um, so um, in the current exhibition, um, which looks at vessels from a number of different angles, as it were, um, I wasn't, I was not looking at aesthetics at all. I had two really strong points of criteria, wood, and then also um, container, or containment. Uh, beyond that, I was guided a little bit by, um, by a, um, a piece from one of the Ghazal from Rumi, who was a, um, a Sufi uh, poet and scholar, and um, um, it's a, it's a fragment of a longer piece, which is beautiful, and I really encourage um, the study of his work. But um, it just stood out to me, and it, and it read, I am a vessel for your light. Mm. And, um, and I wanted to, uh, considering there's a lot of tension that we all kind of were walking around in, um, and the, the the ways that we tried to cope with these things, I think, are less effective than they used to be. I know myself, um, growing up in in a country of um, conflict and um, a lot of violence um, and um, wrongdoing and inhumanity. Um, you know, the way that we would get through our lives and be creative and do things and get inspired and, and enjoy life despite everything was by constructing a bubble and we lived in that bubble um, which is interestingly a form of a self-made vessel in and of itself. Um, 
So I wanted to create a space that people could walk into, recognize this sort of very, very, very fundamental and basic idea, and then approach it from different angles. So, you know, there are works that look at spirituality and the vessel's role in um, serving as a metaphor for um, um, transformative cosmic discussions. Um, I also very much wanted to um, create space for talking about ownership of bodies um, and marginalized bodies and um, the importance of making sure that there are safe places for those bodies to exist in society. Um, and so there are some work, there are some pieces in the exhibition that explicitly address that. Hmm. and. Um, then there are really beautiful pieces of craft that exist in and of themselves as just beautiful, um, beautifully made um, pieces of material that have been shaped into vessels um, through skill and inspiration and um, everything in between. And that's really what I was looking for in this show. We have different scales of vessels. We have very small vessels, and we have an enormous eight-foot-tall vessel um, and you, that you can't even see into. You have to go up to the mezzanine in order to look down and see it from above. Oh, wow. So uh, that was something I really wanted to, to like open people's eyes and, and um, use something that's, that we don't think about. It's so banal because we use it all the time, but um, here's, here's something that you recognize, you deal with all the time every every function of your day and yet it can introduce all kinds of different ideas was there an object or an event that sparked this curatorial idea for you that, that just that, was that aha moment that you got was like you know what i want to do <laughs> that's that's a really provocative question Camila. Ooh. and you wouldn't you wouldn't know you wouldn't know that but i'm gonna <laughs> my mind is wandering now it's like kind of going everywhere <laughs> you're gonna have to clear it up <laughs> i'm here for that i will do that as best as i can um two two things really i mean one one the original name of this organization when it was founded 40 years ago was the Returning Center. So our collection is full of vessels that are that have been turned out of wood because of the process and what the process was meant to do. However, um, so that kind of exhibition was always kind of floating around in my head, like maybe we should talk about, you know, this, this long legacy um, of of vessel making in the contemporary art space in wood at some point. Um, however, uh, this summer, I believe it was late June, correct me if I'm wrong, maybe it was early July, um, was sitting here in a meeting with some peers. We were having a meeting about craft in Philadelphia and in one of our advocacy meetings and it was just announced by one of the members of the group that Roe versus Wade had been overturned and um, as soon as I got out of that meeting, I wrote to an artist who um, is making incredible vessels that are uh, really circulating around motherhood, as well as um, the disparities between um, um, the care and um, health of um, black mothers versus white mothers in this country. And I wrote her an email and I said, what kind of vessels are you making right now? Because I need to put a show together and your work has to be in it. Yeah. 
Um, and that artist, just for clarity and to give her credit, is Alison Crony Moses. Um, and her work is here in the show. Right on. And it does address that. It's beautiful and sensual work that also, um, the more you look at it, you realize that um, it's like the treachery of beauty. Um, mm -hmm. you, you start to see things that are a little bit unsettling, but they're so compelling as, as objects. They're beautiful. They're beautifully made. They're beautiful to look at, but then you start to see things. Well, Nava, um, you know, I just, I would like to just take a moment and express gratitude and say thank you for, for being brave and yeah. daring with your work because, um, you know, I, at least I think in, in craft it is, you know, you, you push things a bit. And I will just say for myself, that is inspiring, especially, you know, being relatively new in a leadership role. Um, it, it encourages me that we have the space here as well. Like we have done it in the past, but we, we have the space to continue to do it as well. So thank you, honestly, thank oh you for God. that. Which kind of leads to my next question in a way. Uh, it's a standard one for me. Uh, do you have any mentors uh, in the field or anyone that you have looked <laughs> up to uh, that has encouraged your career? Now's the oh. time, just go ahead and give your shout outs. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, standing on the shoulders, um, wow. Yes, I mentioned my time at the Israel Museum. My curatorial mentor, his name was Alex Ward. He was the senior curator of our design and architecture in the museum. And he was, um, you know, he was a gentleman, um, a, um, a Glasgowian Scotsman in all the ways um, and charming and, um, but so thoughtful and so smart and so connected and I think, one of the things that I learned about him was how to treat artists in the role. I, I hadn't really had um, any experience being one-on-one -on -one with artists. It was all abstract for me until um, working with Alex. And um, he really taught me, number one, uh, don't bullshit artists. They want to hear it from you straight. Don't mess around with them. Yeah. And number two, don't waste people's time. <laughs> and um, that sounds like such a trite thing to say, but it's really, really, really important and really deep. And um, he sadly died um, 10 years ago, a little over 10 years ago. So I think about Alex all the time and, um, and how he really helped um, me develop a set of muscles to work in this field. And, um, and also more than anyone else with whom I've had the joy of working over the years um, showed me what how important relationships are in our world and um, and and your responsibilities not only to you know it's anyone can do a studio visit and have a great time how do you um, parlay that into something that is more like support mm. um, and because you know that's that's part of the job too it isn't just that frontal part of you know putting together something that can the, the public can experience. It's also how many letters of recommendation are you writing so that artists can get um, opportunities? Um, how many opportunities are you sharing with artists in your world? Like it's advocacy is a huge, huge, huge part of this work. Um, and I learned a lot of that, um, my responsibility for that through Alex. Um, wow, who else? I, so many people. Um, <sighs> Um, I've learned a lot about this field 
from you know my predecessor Albert Lakoff, who was the visionary behind this organization, um, without whom, without a very audacious spirit and vision, um, this place would not exist. Um, and um, and alongside Albert um, Fleur Bressler, who is the premier collector of art in this field, who has been so generous with her collection and um, and um, education behind it, and her knowledge is. Um, infinite and um and i just enjoy her and her wisdom so much um there are many many people uh, a very close friend of mine really helped me understand the museum world when i was in new york her name is judy kamian um, she's a very close friend um, we have um, shared so much over the last 20 years um, whether we worked whether our relationship is based on working together or just being two people in the world who understand each other and can commiserate. That's important. Um, That's a really it, important person so to have. It's so important. It's so important. And I think sometimes um, I will admit that on my own, in my own life, I'm not very good at maintaining a work-life balance. I don't okay. even know what that's like because I came <laughs> up in a generation where we weren't I think um, newer generations or younger generations of, of people who are coming into this world really do commit right. to that, and I applaud it, and I love it, and I'm learning so much from that. Oh, but yeah, in definitely. our generation... Yeah, we were, it's all about, it was all about the hustle. It was all about yeah. the grind. It was all about, you know, making sure, like, you're awake, you're working, you're, <laughs> what's the... For those who ever worked in retail or fast food, if you're leaning, if you're leaning, you're cleaning. If you have time to lean, you have time to clean. So <laughs> that is so. That is absolutely it. Yeah, and and so and I think the promise was out. Like all of the other stuff will fall into place. Yeah. Um, just make this a priority, and then everything else will fall into place. It does so I, not. It's discipline, just like work. You have to make sure that you are making space in your life in order to be the kind of person, have the kind of life that you want to have. That's so hard. It's so. It's a difficult thing, and you know, and 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 it's, uh, yeah, it's just something that we all have to be always have to be mindful of and aware of. It's like, okay, just make sure I take time for me. You have to make time to, it's like, I am going to put on the calendar, do nothing for this hour. Yeah. <laughs> because yeah. otherwise you just keep pushing yourself. Yeah. <laughs> it's so true. It's, it's really um, a skill that I aspire to have one day, but it re- does re- requires just as much discipline as anything else. Yep. Yeah. So, yeah. So you've got your, your friend who helps you, helps keep you grounded and was there anyone else that you wanted to mention? Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I've, I want, I did want to say I've been so fortunate. Uh, I, I've just, I think this, this world of, um, of craft and design is, is um, incredible. Uh, my colleagues, and peers are so smart. Um, and Rachel. Um, everyone that I get to have um, conversation with is, is that every conversation is like enriching, nutritious, learning opportunity and um, sustaining those relationships is just so important on every level. And, and I think that's, that's a big thing about being in Philadelphia. I will say when I moved here 
to take this job um, four and a half years ago, um, I was so surprised at the community of curators here and how um, open it was and how uh, collaborative and um, the sharing of information, the um, just the energy devoted to just getting together was um, very, very unique. And so I prior to that, you hadn't lived in Philadelphia? No, no. I'm, and so I'm, you, were easy, you, you found it easy to go ahead and just like slide into that community? Unbelievable. I yeah. didn't, I didn't, ex I didn't have any reason to expect that. Right. Um, so it continues to be a surprise, but I love it. I, this is a, this is a really fantastic city, I have to say. It's, I, I have a number of friends who live in Philadelphia and I, I would concur. It's a special place. People are, it seems at least, genuine and really do care for one another. Is, isn't, is it the it's city, city of, of brotherly, brotherly love? love. Yeah. It's true. It's true. Way to go, Philadelphia. <laughs> 150 years later, it still is that in a lot of ways. It's also a city of like chaos and, and um, of bad roads and messy. <laughs> but I love those things too. Yeah, I, have I mean, to sometimes a little chaos is good, you know, shake the, keep you awake, shake things up. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I can't have, I can't be in a tranquil environment. I have to have, I have to have roughness all the time. <laughs> this, is, this is a good city for that. I like that. I like <laughs> it. Okay, so now let's move on to the frivolous question. <laughs> <laughs> Frivality. Yes. yes. What are the three songs that you would use to describe your work? Oh my goodness. Uh, this is so tough because there's so many songs in the world. I mean, what a catalog to draw from. Yeah, I know. It's a tough thing for people who love music to, to be like, yeah, these are the three songs. Like, three. I can imagine a lot of us would stress over this for a long time. I would be like, these are the three playlists. That <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why. I'm just gonna go with my gut. So the first All one right. that comes like straight, like bloop, is um, they might be giants, birdhouse, and your soul. Okay. <laughs> uh, because it seems like it aligns with some of the things that we've been talking about today. Yeah. And it's like a safe place, <laughs> um, but it's also kind of kooky place to be. Yeah. Um, so I don't know if that I see back to the whole thing about the work-life divide. I don't know if that describes more the work that I do or the way that I do the work or describes by what it's like in, in this vessel here, um, <laughs> which is a kind of messy place. Yeah, I think all three are acceptable yeah. places and spaces to be able to go ahead and use that song as descriptor. Yeah. <laughs> Good. Um, wow. The other two are going to take some thinking. Number two, I guess, would be like a, a really typical um, pop Arabic song um, that's like been covered by, wow, every single pop star singing in Arabic. Uh, mm. Like Habibi Aini, which is just this like, my love, love of my eyes. Okay. Um, it's just, it, there's, there's not, it's not deep. It's just like, it's been, it's been redone and redone and redone and redone. It's almost like a requirement for every mm -hmm. pop star in the Middle Eastern world, but 
but um, I don't even know who did it first. I don't know who wrote it, but it's like when you hear it, you just like it clicks into that part of you, um, and you just I, I I respond to it in the way that like pop songs are supposed to make you respond to them when they're good. Okay, yeah, I get that. It's like sometimes they they're a little formulaic or whatnot, or there's something about a melody, like a certain a certain gathering of keys and notes. <laughs> it's like, yeah, that, that's right. That pokes into that, I, I guess, what is it called, the lizard brain, or that like yeah. pre, prehistoric part of you. Right. That gets you moving or motivated or like, oh, yeah. This is so off topic, although maybe it's not. But when th there was some awards show a couple of years ago and Snoop Dogg won the award and mm -hmm. he got up and, you know, everybody's like, you know, they have the lists. Mm -hmm. Now they read from their phones like a prepared speech and have to thank like and, uh, and blah, 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 and management and blah, right. blah, And then he got up there and he's like, there's just one person that I want to thank. Um, and that person has really put in the time and the work and the effort. And that person is me. <laughs> <laughs> I want to thank myself for giving myself the opportunities that I received and the support uh, to realize my vision. It was like, yes. Yeah, yeah. you got to thank yes. yourself. Yes. <laughs> like, truly, I mean, who like, else was there? All right, the sleeping yeah. nights. Yeah, who was there? Like, they're exactly thick and thin, like for real, for real, like twenty four seven. Like, no, we don't do any of this on our. We don't succeed on our own, but we do. We do owe ourselves some gratitude. Totally, and I live for the time that we, that that we are in a world where a statement like that, which is so honest, mm -hmm. um, is not audacious or right. not viewed as like, oh, spa. Like, oh my, clutch the pearls. Who? Why? <laughs> <laughs> Like, no, he deserves it. <laughs> he's right. Yeah, right. right. I mean, he's the guy holding the prize, right? Right, right. right. <laughs> Whose name did you call? You called his name. <laughs> does that count? It's not really a song, but it's an <laughs> Just everything. Snoop everything. Right, it's just a sentiment. <laughs> um, yes. Right. Yeah, but right. yeah, I would. I will, I will pick a Snoop Dogg song that encapsulates <laughs> that, that vibe. <laughs> that, Yeah. All right, that works. <laughs> oh. <laughs> well, thank you, Nava. This has been a lot of fun today. Yeah. Oh my God. Thank you both so much. I any time. Awesome. Mm -hmm. uh, so, do you want to tell us about anything coming up at um at your spot or you know wherever anything you want to let people know about that's happening and also where they can find you on on the interwebs if you want that. Oh, so much, so many things happening in 2023. First of all, um, my assumption is that by the time this conversation airs, we'll have changed our name. Oh, oh, um, to the Museum for Art and Wood. Okay. Oh, wow, big news. So that, <laughs> yeah. that's we something. got the scoop. <laughs> so, I didn't, I didn't tell my publicist, but, um, <laughs> hear this, but, um, so I, I don't know how we weave that in, but that's a, that's a big move that we've been planning on. Um, and, um, and it comes with the announcement of a major endowment gift as well that allowed us to think about our future and how we are 
serving our public and our constituents and um, the the message that we're sending out to them about how we can be used and how our resources can be enjoyed and uh, the name change seemed it seemed like the right time to um, own up to the fact that we do operate like a museum so why are we not calling ourselves that um, so thank you thank you it's it's great it's a it's a really great um, move forward in our history right so there's that. Number two is that on March 3rd, we are opening um, a pretty big project here at the Center for Art and Wood, or the Museum for Art and Wood, <laughs> which it will be called by that time. Um, and that project is the result of um, a couple of years of study on my end and about 25 years of inspiration um, and growth of a seed. Um, it started in the Middle East, um, and that is that we are bringing the discussion of um, something called mashrabia to audiences in Philadelphia. Mashrabia is a wood-turned um, lattice screen okay. um, that is, um, in some form or another, it's common to um, architecture across the Islamic world, um, not necessarily in wood, but in stone or carved wood. Um, or um, in modern architecture, even cement. Uh, but we're looking at North African um, wood-turned uh, lattice work that is a major um, component of exterior-interior architecture as well as um, furniture and um, internal division of space inside domestic architecture. Uh, we will have a number of artists responding to that, um, as well as um, a workshop set up where you can participate in the making of Hamashabea through wood turning, and um, many, 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 many public programs um, that celebrate Egyptian and Islamic and Middle Eastern culture. Actually, I should be saying Western um, Asia culture. I'm trying to move away from um, the colonialist phrasing of Middle East. Okay. And, um, and um, yeah, today I was not so successful successful about that. But anyway, what we're talking about West North Africa, Western Asia, the Swana region, um, and the artists who are involved in this exhibition are um, um, have roots in the Islamic world, uh, from Marrakesh in Morocco all the way to um, Pakistan, and all in between. And um, they will be reflecting on um, on the mashrabiyah and the way it divides space. Um, the way it provides connectivity, um, despite that division, um, the craft of the mashrabiyah, and then um, the way that it has been involved in separating and um, empowering or disempowering gender wow. as an object. Um, and I will have to come back. You have to back. come back. It's coming <laughs> on, and um, and I'm just so excited about about the discussions that we'll be having and the programming we'll be hosting and um, the work that we'll be showing here. And it's opening. I mentioned on March 3rd. It closes in the end of July. So you have a lot of time oh, wow. to come, to Billy. Excellent. Okay, folks, so big news for our next episode. We'll be talking with hometown hero and ceramic legend Sharif Bey. Thanks for listening, and until next time. <laughs>